save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. In our continuing series of rewilding and better understanding predators' roles in shaping landscapes, today with my guest Mike Phillips of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, we're going to learn about wolves and the efforts to reintroduce them into the last viable remaining wildlands in western Colorado. Throughout human history, the wolf has been both one of the most misunderstood, maligned, and hated animals to roam the earth, and yet it is also one of the most revered to the point of mythological status. This love-hate relationship continues today. With Mike, we hope to give our listeners some historical background and as to why the wolf debates rage on, and further, what we can do about understanding why wolf restoration is critical to conservation, efforts, habitat ecology, and balancing wildness on nature's terms, with a little help from her friends. Welcome, Mike. It's nice to have you here. Ellie, it's uh, it's my honor to be here. Thank you so much for uh, letting me offer some thoughts. Well, I'm really excited about today's conversation. You uh, were recently in my neck of the woods in the Roaring Fork Valley and uh, did a couple of presentations. And uh, a lot of the ranchers here uh, from our state of Colorado were there. And I, from watching what was going on in, in those two uh, presentations you did, the debate still do rage on. There's a lot of um, angst going on about reintroducing wolves in Colorado. So how about we start with you giving us a little background that led you to the wolves? Sure. Well, Ellie, thank you. Uh, first, let me say I'm not surprised by the angst and the anxiety. When you look at our evolutionary past, uh, it's good to be skeptical. It's good to be careful of the unknown. When we were but hunter-gatherers, and, and, and really when you, you cut us deep enough, that's what we are, that's what will, for all intent and purposes, always be. Uh, it's good to be skeptical of the unknown. It, it's a helpful way to promote survival. That said, okay, Ellie, so uh, Mike Phillips, you know, I've been involved with wolf recovery and conservation on a near-daily basis since the early 1980s, I had the uh, high honor to lead the effort to restore red wolves to the southeastern United States back in the 1980s. That, Ellie, was the, the first attempt in the history of mankind to restore a carnivore species that had been declared extinct in the wild. From, from there, I had the high honor of serving as the first leader of the effort to restore gray wolves to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem by conducting reintroductions into Yellowstone National Park. Uh, I left the park about 21 years ago. Ted Turner and I came together in in 1997 and, and co-founded the Turner Endangered Species Fund. That's the nonprofit conservation organization that I have I have run ever since. The fund, from day one, the fund has stood as the 
the world's most significant private effort to redress the extinction crisis. So the, the fund, my shop, works daily on efforts to advance the conservation of imperiled species, principally through reintroduction projects that might include red-cockaded woodpeckers or gopher tortoises or eastern indigo snakes or oplomato falcons or bolson tortoises or black-footed ferrets and, and on and on and on. In that capacity, uh, Team Turner, the Turner Endangered Species Fund, has been very actively involved in wolf recovery across the Rocky Mountain West. I've been a member of every Mexican wolf recovery team that's been convened since 1995. For example, uh, back in 19... 19- 97, 1998, one of the first things the Turner Endangered Species Fund did was build a captive breeding and pre-release facility for Mexican wolves at a remote location at the Ladder Ranch, which sits in in southwestern New Mexico. So that's a long-winded way of me saying, Ellie, I don't know much about most things, but I know a little bit about wolf recovery and conservation. And that's what we're here to learn today. And just as a little aside, I was involved in one of the uh, Mexican wolf recovery uh, issues, programs with U.S. Fish and Wildlife down in uh, Socorro uh, Wildlife Area. And we were doing condition taste aversion on a pack sure. that was then released. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you also know my friend Carter Niemeyer then. Carter and I uh, have been friends and colleagues for OG oh, Wiz uh, a long a time. Century. So Carter's been on the program quite a few times. So our listeners are familiar a little bit with sure. wolf history, but not what's going on now. So you've given us a great overview of the Turner Endangered Species Fund. So let's go back to a little bit of history. The, you know, the history of wolf extermination. They used to range from central Mexico all the way to the North Pole. And then we started these eradication programs. Why does this mindset continue today? Oh, well, first and foremost, the uh, eradication never extended north. Uh, Canada has always supported thousands of gray wolves. There are thousands of gray wolves in Alaska. The extermination programs really connected to uh, the continental United States and Mexico. You're right, gray wolves in that country could be found everywhere from coast to coast, east to west, north to south. And, And really, uh, the persecution that was directed at the gray wolf was just part and parcel to the country's sense of manifest destiny that the great wildlands of the continental United States. And then Mexico seemingly had a similar approach, but uh, we can certainly say this is true for the United States, the continental United States, that for the country to be what people desired, uh, we, had to, we had to destroy the country's wildness. And, 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 and the gray wolf was a clear manifestation of wildness in the minds of many, and so it had to go. It had to go. The grizzly bear had to go. The cougar had to go. The great herds of ungulates that might compete with European cattle. And, of course, folks need to be mindful. All the cattle in this country have their origin somewhere else. The, the native uh, large herbivore was American Plains bison. And and it, right alongside the gray wolf, was persecuted nearly to the, the brink of extinction. You know, when you think about the gray wolf, by the late 1950s, this 
very common large carnivore, the gray wolf, historically was everywhere. By the late 1950s, Ellie, you could only find a few hundred in the far corners of the Superior National Forest of, of northern Minnesota, and then a small number of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten animals on Isle Royal National Park in Lake Superior. And, and I do believe it was all part of this country's determination to, to subdue the land for the singular benefit of humankind. Not, not mindful that it, it, it's, it's the richness of these landscapes, their wildness, that actually provides for our needs. Uh, we went entirely too far with the settling of this country. And, and, and we're still we doing that. We're that. still, and now we're go, going even further with this, you know, chasing the infinite growth on a finite planet. So wolves well, do yeah, come that, into that. That's a, that's a separate issue. I would welcome a chance to talk about that. Your, your listeners also need to know I, I'm not only a conservation scientist that's been involved in some very controversial projects over the last 30, 40 years. I have served in elected office for over a decade. I will hold my state seat, my state Senate seat in Montana through the end of 2020. So I, I have a very good uh, sense of and appreciation for legislative and policy matters that relate to conservation and particularly gray wolves. But, but back to your question, that, that's why the gray wolf got caught up. That's why the gray wolf was destroyed. It was part and parcel of uh, this country's determination to settle the land, to make room for economic expansion. And what's interesting about that is even while we were extirpating them um, to the point of um, disappearance, those last survivors that managed to maintain a hold were given names and places in history, almost mythological status. So that, once again, is this love-hate relationship we have this with this animal. So um, we still well, have some... No, no, but Ellie, that's, that's predictable too. Rarity always confers uh, status. Yeah. Gold has value, not because it's unique among the metals necessarily. It's unique because it's always been rare. Uh, if That's something kind of is rare, humans it, it, tend to uh, place value on it. And as gray wolves became rare, we thought, oh my gosh, uh, that, that animal's kind of special. It's the only one of its kind left. That's kind of crazy if you really sit back and uh, it, it integrate what you just said. That it, when it's ubiquitous, we don't want it. If it competes with us, we don't want it. But then all of a sudden, it's rare. It has a priceless value. But here still, we're, we're having this debate and not able to fully you know, get why wolves rewilded. Uh, that's true. No, I, I, well, there's many things that we do that are inconsistent and hard to understand. And I suppose dosage always matters. Now, maybe some folks can take wolves in small doses, but they, uh, they, they're troubled by wolves in bigger doses. What, what well, we're well, that leads to us to a good point. You know, that, wolf, I'm sorry to interrupt, um, wolf and human interactions. I, I think that what you just said there is a great lead-in. So why don't you help us understand a little bit of both sides of this, and um, then we'll be heading into a break and we can pick it up. Well, both sides are useful, both sides have standing the one side that that is concerned by gray wolves speaks to the problems that they cause. And it is true 
that some gray wolves can cause some problems. But it is always important to put problems in perspective. Uh, we, we know that, that gray wolves are not a threat to human safety. They never have been. Uh, and, and while that might be a problem in the minds of some, uh, there are no reliable data. There are no reliable stories uh, that would support that concern. Some would say gray wolves are a threat to the big game killing industry, the big game hunting industry. Well, we know from areas where gray wolves are, are common, uh, big game hunting, big game killing is still a very common recreational activity. There's probably 500 gray wolves in Montana today, my home state, and you can still find grand opportunities to go out and kill elk uh, for recreational purposes. And then finally, some would say, well, gee whiz, my gray wolves cause problems for the livestock industry. Well, that's not true either. We, we know from very good, reliable data that it's the atypical gray wolf that kills livestock. They do not represent a threat to the industry. They do sometimes uh, represent a threat to individual producers. Uh, a gray wolf kills a, a yearling a cow on Monday night, and you learn about it Tuesday morning, and that was your cow, you've got a problem. And that's true. I understand that. And it is fortunate that we have tools at the ready that can be employed to stop depredations from occurring. We have tools at the ready that can be used to prevent depredations from occurring in the first place. So the side that stands opposing gray wolves that say, well, the problems they cause are too consequential. In contrast, the side that supports wolf restoration says, oh, no, 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 no. The problems caused by wolves are, are really no big deal. They can be, they can be managed. And, and we think that the wolf brings some important benefits to the wild landscapes of the Rocky Mountain West. We know their predatory activities can matter. The, the wolf sometimes can kill enough stuff, a native prey, elk and deer, for example, to cause a change in landscapes. Gray wolves have the potential to serve as ecological engineers, to shape landscapes, to make them more diverse and in turn uh, healthier. We, we can talk about the predatory consequences of gray wolves, but both sides have their stories and both sides have their data. I'm a big believer that facts matter. And, and what the facts tell me is, is quite simple, Ellie. If people are willing to embrace a reasonable sense of the gray wolf based on reliable data, a reasonable sense of the gray wolf, they will conclude that coexisting with it is a rather straightforward affair that requires only a modicum of accommodation. Well, this is fascinating. You know what? Um, I think it's a really good time to step away to a break because we have a whole lot more to get into and talk about what these problems are um, in terms of human and wolf interactions. We, we got a good understanding of, you know, some of the predation and how it will affect individual ranchers and on the, the smaller scale. But you've just also told us that on the across the board, on the larger scale, the wolf impact on livestock is overall minimal. Um, but to an individual, that matters. So, folks, stick with us and we're going to step away and take a break. But come on back because we've got lots to talk about. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Wildlife. No wild, no life. 
Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Mike Phillips of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. So if you've been following along with us in our series about wolves and their importance and global issues, Mike here is here today telling us and helping us understand what some of these two sides of the or, uh, arguments are. So we've talked a little bit about the background, and Mike is one of the preeminent uh, wolf researchers. Um, he's also a legislator, so he ha- understands the politics of what's going on here. So Mike, um, we talked about that there are problems between wolves and people. Let's let's actually say what some of those problems are, some of the things you've heard at some of the meetings. Well, Ellie, uh, first I want your listeners to know if, if they're interested in more details that we're discussing today, uh, they can go to the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project's website. That's just www.rockymountainwolfproject.org and find lots of good resources that aim to to explain the wolf, its ecology, and interactions with humans in very truthful terms. 
based on reliable data. And as we speak about problems that gray wolves uh, might be associated with, and I provide answers and stories that speak about gray wolves and problems, know that the gray wolf is one of the most intensively studied large mammals in the world, maybe the most studied large mammal in the world. So when I speak about wolf habits, uh, know that my comments are based on uh, reliable studies that have been reliable scientific studies that have been conducted over decades. We know a lot about gray wolves. Uh, we, we know that in the universe of problems, it is the friction between wolves and livestock that has always been the big problem. It was really the livestock industry that sat at the tip of the spear of efforts to eradicate the gray wolf back in the day. Uh, the livestockmen could not cotton the notion of any uh, stock being lost to gray wolves. And the United States government was a most willing partner. Most of the wolves that were killed in the country, hundreds of thousands of wolves, shot, trapped, poisoned, clubbed to death, dug out of dens when they were puppies and stepped on. Uh, most of those animals were killed by federal agents working from federal tax dollars back in the day, in the 18 and early 1900s. And it was because the livestock industry simply could not accept any level of depredations. And, and eventually, the gray wolf uh, looked around the landscape as it was being settled by white Europeans, for all intent and purposes, and they had, they had destroyed the native game. You know, the father of wildlife management, a gentleman named Aldo Leopold, Years ago, in the 1930s, Dr. Leopold opined that the science of wildlife management grew out of, a, out of a need for things to shoot. All the great game herds had been decimated because of the East Coast markets. Elk, pronghorn, white-tailed deer, mule deer, all decimated. So you're and a gray wolf, you're looking around and you think, well, holy mackerel, I've got no elk, I've got no deer, I still need to eat. And to some extent, we brought this problem on ourselves because we killed everything. And so the livestock industry would still say, Mike, it is still a fact that the gray wolf represents a threat to our industry. That, that is not true. That, that is a myth. It is true that it's the atypical wolf that kills livestock. It is true that the great game herds have been restored. So in a place like Colorado, for example, the gray wolf would find plenty, plenty of native prey, elk and deer, and would not be forced to really consider livestock as, a, as an item of choice. Uh, so the problems that we have with livestock are old. It has always been this principal point of friction. It's been based on a misunderstanding. It's been based on inflated claims of wolf-induced losses. It's been based on a denial of good field techniques that can be employed to stop depredations if they do occur. It's been based on a denial of recognition of good field techniques that can be employed, Ellie, employed to stop problems from ever occurring in the first place. For heaven's sakes, we can put a man on the moon and bring him back. We can take your heart out of your chest and put it back better than before. I promise you, we can coexist with the gray wolf. It really is just a, a matter of will. 
You know, um, this brings to mind, I love your passion because I'm in a 100% agreement with you that we can learn to coexist and it's getting over this little hurdle right now to getting to be those kind of people that can coexist. But what you said just highlighted a question. Uh, It's sort of a point of a visual that we have federal public lands that the livestock industry uh, uses for grazing. They pay fees. So there's a fee structure and it's kind of subsidized. And on these same public lands is where the wolf and its prey also live. So when when we're discussing these problems, we need the visual that they're all living on the same lands. Well, thank you for that for that handoff, uh, when, when I speak, and most of my colleagues, the highly trained, deeply experienced conservation scientists, when we speak about wolf restoration, we're targeting federal public lands, uh, national forests, for example, uh, lands administered by the Bureau of Land Management. These are lands owned by all Americans. Uh, many of the lands are open to grazing by livestock owned by ranchers. It is true that the ranchers pay a fee. You mentioned that the the access to the grass, the grazing opportunities on these federal public lands was kind of subsidized. That's that's not true. You don't need to qualify. They are heavily subsidized. Okay. Uh, we we know from very good data that it's undeniable that it costs the just as an example, the Forest Service about you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen dollars per unit of grass to administer the program, and the rancher will pay about a buck and a half to two dollars for that same unit of grass. Uh, So the the program is heavily subsidized by folks like you and me, and and I'm okay with that. I'm okay because I believe uh, ranching in in the rural Rocky Mountain West generates lots of benefits, and I'm okay paying my fair share for those benefits, but it is a heavily subsidized program. And, and I have said for truly decades now that I can accept very liberal management of gray wolves on private land. I can accept that a gray wolf on private land uh, 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 with the potential to cause problems, uh, you know, probably really should be elsewhere and that the landowner should have the opportunity to affect management. And, and that might mean, you know, very liberal management schemes on private land. Conversely, I have said that there should be very conservative management on public land. Uh, I can make a case that except for threatening human life, which gray wolves don't do, but, but for now, let's just imagine, except for that, what can a gray wolf really do wrong on federal public land? You've right. already subsidized the rancher by about an order of magnitude to help offset the cost of his decision or her decision to put her livestock on federal public land. You've already said, we know it can be tough out there, but if you're going to make that business decision, we're going to help you by charging you a fraction of what it costs to run the program. In light of that subsidy, what can a gray wolf do on public land that's wrong? Except eat somebody's cow. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, you know, and I realize that some would say, well, gee whiz, Mike, you're oversimplifying. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. It's my grass, too. Right. The White River National Forest in Colorado is as much my national forest as it is yours, as it is uh, 
uh, a native Coloradan living in Denver or Boulder or Aspen or wherever. That is the great beauty of federal public lands. It connects us as a country. And we all have the right, I would almost say the responsibility, to concern ourselves with the future of our great public wildlands. This is this is fascinating. So that it leads me to another point of about wolf reintroduction and what the overall benefit and connectivity of reintroducing them to Western Colorado would mean. So on your website and uh, some of the key elements and the significance of this Rocky Mountain wolf reintroduction, help us understand why it's so significant. And when we talk in conservation terms of corridor ecology. Yeah. Well, there's a number of reasons that uh, reestablishing the gray wolf to the great public wildlands of western Colorado is strongly indicated. There is a legal mandate. The gray wolf, Canis lupus, uh, is listed under federal law. The Federal Endangered Species Act considers the gray wolf in western Colorado to be fully endangered. Uh, when Congress passed that law, they were clear in expressing the intent that the United States Department of Interior shall recover endangered species and make them more common so they're not endangered. It's not a discretionary activity. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can't choose to try to recover an endangered species here and choose not to recover it over there. It is a mandated duty. So there's a strong legal impetus to uh, make the gray wolf much more common in Colorado, because right now the gray wolf in Colorado is extirpated. It doesn't occur at all. There's the legal mandate. There is a moral mandate that would say uh, it, it was extirpated unfairly. It doesn't need to remain absent from the state. We have good techniques to cost-effectively and certainly and humanely return the gray wolf to its rightful place in western Colorado, and that, that's the kind of forward-thinking land and wildlife management that many find to have moral underpinnings. It's just part and parcel of being a responsible citizen of this planet and a steward of the life that still surrounds us. Uh, And then there's ecological consequences as too. I spoke earlier when gray wolves are common enough for a long enough period of time, their predatory activities can bring about ecological changes, sometimes making landscapes healthier and more diverse than they would be otherwise. We know that gray wolf predation contributed to what looks to be increasing ecological health in uh, Yellowstone National Park, for example, and we have similar data from other areas where gray wolf predation seems to be a very important ecological force. And if people doubt that, think about it this way. I try to boil down uh, some of these issues into very simple terms that are really undeniable. I would have you believe, Ellie, that the most powerful force in the universe, the most powerful force in the universe, may well be life. Well, and for this discussion, let's assume that that's true, that life is the most powerful force in the universe. If that's the case, then it would seem to follow logically that death should follow right behind. If life is important, then boy, oh boy, death is too. And if that's the case, let's imagine you are a purveyor of death. You're a, an obligate carnivore like the gray wolf that you live principally by killing things. If that's the case, then you have to matter. 
if life matters and death matters, if you're involved on a daily basis in the, the dance between life and death, you have to matter. So, of course, gray wolves have a potentially important ecological role to play. And then finally, on the notion of connectivity. Well, when you look at Colorado and you, you, you think about the country to the north and you think about the country to the south, well, gee whiz, if you can put the gray wolf back in western Colorado, it would serve as the archstone, the final piece, connecting gray wolves all the way from the high Arctic to the Mexican border. Because with gray wolves in Colorado, some animals would drift north and interact with their brothers and sisters to the north, and some animals would drift south and interact with their brothers and sisters to the south. It's the final piece in this great big puzzle connecting gray wolves in the high Arctic to the Mexican border. Ellie, there is no other place in the world where you can imagine the restoration of a much maligned and misunderstood large carnivore across such a sweeping, inspiring continental landscape. That well, you know, the vision, the vision absolutely um, is, is what I would hope we can get to. And, um, you know, the, the vision of seeing wolves in my backyard would be an ultimate goal. And yes, it does require us to rethink how we live on the land as we, you know, you blur well, the boundaries. No, no, not much. Between... No, no, really not much. No, no. Here, that, we, we really well, I mean, in terms of how we, how we blur land. the boundaries, like no, no, up well, here not, in... Yeah. Um, Ellie, please understand, it, it, this is very important for your, read, your listeners to understand. The gray wolf doesn't require that we do much of anything except right. stop killing it. Okay, right. so here's a good example. Let me, a good example. Not long ago, the United States government made clear that the greater sage-grouse was in trouble. And the states of the Rocky Mountain West and the oil and gas industry and the ranching community all came together. And they said, holy mackerel, we do not want the United States Fish and Wildlife Service to list the greater sage-grouse under the Endangered Species Act. That would upset the apple cart of the rural Rocky Mountain West because that bird has needs, very real needs that can conflict with oil and gas exploration and development. That bird has very real needs that can conflict with the ranching industry. We have to have some way forward that allows everybody to be satisfied. The states came together, uh, passed laws, developed conservation plans that, that, that collectively allowed the United States Fish and Wildlife Service to say, okay, with all these great promises to advance conservation of greater sage-grouse, we're not going to list that species under the Endangered Species Act. Beautiful work, beautiful plans, all came together. Ultimately, at last count, and I know this because of my service in the Montana Senate, at last count, all of these plans and promises came with about $750 million of financial promises. Three quarters of a billion dollars was being targeted for exercise to advance the security of the greater sage grouse, a species that has real potential, given its needs, to conflict with oil and gas and ranching activities in the Rocky Mountain West. Hold that thought. Ellie, the gray wolf doesn't need anything. The gray wolf doesn't care about oil and gas activities. The gray wolf doesn't care about ranching activities. The gray wolf doesn't care about roads and logging and any of these things that might be land management uses or land uses and land management activities in the Rocky Mountain West. All the gray wolf needs is to be left alone. 
you know, the, and that's a great point. The beauty of restoration so, is that it asks so very little of us. And this is this is wonderful. You know, we need to step away for a break. Your passion is is just astonishing, and I love it. So we're going to step away for a short break, and then we're going to come on. And uh, so stick with us. We'll be right back. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Is email an important part of your business? It is for us. That's why Voice America partners with MailJet. MailJet lets us create impactful newsletters and deliver them right to the inbox fast. Microsoft, MIT, and Avis trust MailJet for their emailing, and so should you. Go to MailJet.com and use the promo code VOICEAMERICA to start emailing for free today. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and a very passionate Mike Phillips on Wolf Reintroduction. And what we've heard now is the wolf really doesn't need anything from us what it, other than to leave it alone and let it come back. So, Mike, in the last couple of sections, we talked a lot about, you know, where the wolf can go, that this is the last remaining habitat, western Colorado, that they can go north, they can go south, and the connectivity corridor. 
her. What I think is confusing to a lot of our listeners, and when you hear a lot of the wolf conversation, is the laws seem to vary. We talked about that it is listed under um, Endangered Species Act and that we are mandated to protect it. But in California, it's illegal to kill them. Uh, in Alaska, it's now legal to kill them in their dens. In Montana, it's legal to kill them. So how do we understand who governs how they live, who lives and who dies, and why, and how it's so different from state to state? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. I want to go back first, though. So your listeners understand the relevance of Western Colorado. Uh, it, it is the, the represents the best remaining wolfless wolf habitat in the in the world, in my humble estimation. With over 17 million acres of federal public land that are managed for conservation purposes, across which the gray wolf would receive reasonable for just a, for just a second. Let me of, let me just give us give our listeners a visual. How big is Yellowstone? The ecosystem, well, Yellowstone, Yellowstone, yeah, National Yellowstone Park. is two point two million acres. So okay, uh, and you place. just listed, you just yeah. said seventeen million acres. Yeah, I did. So here's the way. To so look how many it. wolves are in Yellowstone? Well, Ellie, let's back up. The, the project that I ran back in the '90s that involved Yellowstone Park never intended to simply restore gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. Right. The intent was always to restore gray wolves to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Right. The ecosystem involves the park at 2.2 million acres and then five national forests that surround the park. Collectively, we could easily say that the greater Yellowstone ecosystem of Montana and Wyoming and Idaho includes, oh, let's say, 15 million acres of federal public lands. And, and now it supports, on average, about uh, four to 500 gray wolves. To put so, Western Colorado so, in perspective, it supports right. uh, over 17 million acres of federal public land. So a bigger a pattern of a bigger base of federal public lands than the Greater Yellowstone. And on top of that, Western Colorado supports far more food for the gray wolf than uh, the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And the reason that matters in areas where human-caused mortality of gray wolves is low and this gets back to your question about legal regulations, where human-caused mortality is low, about 85% of the variability in a wolf population from year to year is a function of food, a function of prey biomass. Gray wolves are not that complicated. If you don't shoot them, if you don't shoot them, you don't poison them, you don't trap them, and knock them in the head, uh, what really tends to define their population is how much native prey is out there. Colorado is blessed with a, a superabundance of deer and elk. So I want your listeners to know that Western Colorado is is the best wolf habitat uh, in the continental United States that is currently wolfless. It it may well be uh, the best wolf habitat in the continental United States compared to even areas that support gray wolves like the Great Yellowstone. But on to the question of legalities. Some In some areas, the wolf is managed by state agencies. In some areas, the wolf remains managed by the federal government. In Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, for example, the gray wolf there is managed by state agencies, and those states have instituted very liberal killing programs, both to resolve the few conflicts with livestock that do arise on an annual basis and to promote a recreational program. Lots of people find it recreationally satisfying to, to kill a gray wolf. And so, so, for example, in Montana, 
Uh, let's assume that Montana has 500 gray wolves. Through the recreational killing program, lawful now, and through the program to resolve conflicts with livestock, about half of those 500 gray wolves are killed every year. And similar numbers probably uh, describe Idaho and Wyoming, where state management also is the norm. Elsewhere in the United States, the gray wolf remains protected under the Federal Endangered Species Act and therefore is governed by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service and, for the most part, is not subjected to the same kind of very liberal killing that you would find under state management in the northern Rocky Mountains. So, so really, Ellie, the, it all has to do with who is, who is overseeing the wolf population. If it's a state agency like Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, you tend to see a very uh, liberal uh, killing program in place because the gray wolf is relatively common. Uh, and if the federal government remains in charge, place like Colorado, and the federal government remains in charge because gray wolves are very, very uncommon, if not absent altogether, uh, you don't see much in the way of killing at all. So uh, earlier you had mentioned, you know, another conflict, and let's just touch on this a little bit, um, that it's not just between ranchers and wolves. It's also, as you were talking about, hunters and wolves and hunters wanting the deer and the elk for them versus the wolves. And then also hunters wanting to sport kill uh, the wolves. Yeah, well, some uh, big game hunters uh, would have you believe that their prospects of uh, killing a deer or an elk go way down in in the presence of gray wolves. Uh, the the data don't support that. There are there are really great memorable hunting opportunities in Montana in the same country that supports gray wolves. Uh, there's there's plenty of game to go around, and I, I would also hope that hunters would celebrate the hunt for reasons more than just shoving a deer in the freezer so you can have venison in 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 in, in the you know following summer there there's more to hunting than killing and uh, right. I keep waiting for big game hunters to find some kindred connection with another great predator that being the that being the gray wolf uh, so there's, there's hopefully plenty. not to kill it though well, and, no, no, and we no, also let's, have let's, to realize let's, let's wolves about, can go. We, we can to, we can talk about go, the gray wolf as a fur bearer. Uh, uh, humans have used fur for as long as we've wandered around as hunter gatherers. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Fur bears matter. Uh, people trap mink. People will call coyotes and harvest the fur. They can do the same with gray wolves. Gray wolves do at certain times of the year have a magnificent coat. And some people covet the fur. They covet the fur as an item of art. They covet the fur to to use as the the edge of a the rough around a coat. Uh, I understand that. And also in I, I, I don't in tribal celebration, wolf as a fur bearer. But I I understand that others do. And I will say this: in the presence of professional management by well trained biologists that work for the state agencies, the gray wolf represents a a renewable resource. Uh, you can trap gray wolves and you can hunt gray wolves and, and still have gray wolves. So here's a good point or, or a good data point to support that claim. I just said moments ago that about half the gray wolves in the state of Montana are killed every year. But the population persists, and that's true. 
And, and, and so the, the, the wolf is so accommodating of the stresses that we can put on it. It will find a way to continue on. I'm not suggesting that these liberal killing programs are what I would institute if I had final say. I am saying that the life form finds a way. And I would hope, given time, we would be a little more sensitive to the value of life and recognize that, well, I appreciate the beautiful fur on the back of that wolf. I'm going to enjoy it from a distance because I can see it, and then I'm not going to kill it. But the killing that's going on, Ellie, is really a function of who has authority. If it's a state game department, uh, they tend to put in place very liberal uh, management schemes because by the time the state comes to control the resource, by the time the state comes to oversee management of a wolf population, the wolf is common enough for that kind of management. The federal government stays involved when the wolf is uncommon. So, for example, in Colorado, there are no gray wolves. You, you couldn't have a, a wolf hunting season in Colorado. You can't hum, hunt something that doesn't exist. I believe that once we're able to bring these rare resources back to some state of commonness, it is appropriate for the federal government to step away and let state governments manage the resource. Uh, I recognize that Coloradans may say in the presence of a viable wolf population, we don't want a liberal recreational killing program. Okay, that's, that's great. I recognize Montanans may choose otherwise. So how, how get, does one, we, how, do, how do you, the government, the agencies, the biologists, the scientists decide, how is it to come about that the wolf is common? What, if we're going to talk numbers, Sure. per square mile in 17 million acres and that wolves can go places that people can't go so there's there's a protection in that from the hunter so to speak um, maybe not for the cow or the sheep but when it comes down to a numbers game does that apply what is viability yeah. for the wolf well just technically I think we could say without causing too many of my colleagues that call themselves population biologists I think they would grudgingly accept that 250 gray wolves in western Colorado would would exist as a viable population. You know, not great, but yeah, sure, I can imagine that 250 today will be 250 or thereabouts uh, a year from now. And 250 is a reasonable number to describe population viability. I think you could further imagine that something like 500 gray wolves in western Colorado would be enough for the federal government to say our, our oversight of this particular wildlife resource is no longer needed. 500 gray wolves in Colorado represent a secure enough situation so that the Endangered Species Act does not need to be any longer applied. And so we're done. We're done. Does that the state give of those... Colorado will have authority for those 500 gray wolves. These are not big numbers. Right. No, these are not that's, big numbers. That's what uh, was going to be my question. Is 500 wolves enough for them to expand into this great corridor of reconnectivity from oh, the yes. south to the north? Yes. There's an old Russian proverb, Ellie, that said a wolf is kept fed by its feet. And, and what that means is these uh, animals have tremendous capacity 
to wander over great distances. I'm convinced sometimes they're motivated by hunger. Other times they're just motivated. Maybe motivated in, in, out of desire for a mate. Maybe motivated by curiosity. Maybe sometimes just motivated. It was 500 like the, gray wolves the in western that... Colorado. Some would go north and bump into some animals in Wyoming. And some would go north and bump into Mexican wolves that have been restored to the border country of southeastern Arizona and southwestern New Mexico. And it would be that bumping into that would result in the restoration of these ancient connections, the ancient Unless, connections of, course, of gray wolves in the high Arctic to the Mexican border. And there were those two wolves that uh, wandered down to the uh, Grand Canyon to end up finding their fate there. Um, but hopefully, what the point that you just made is that, you know, their, their wanderlust and motivation uh, to move, to seek out new territory, to disperse, and to find a mate, and to, and to balance the ecosystem, as we'd, we'd said, their architects, um, will help to uh, bring back wolf restoration in uh, western Colorado and unfortunately today we're out of time but Mike this is fabulous so once again listeners if uh, you go to rockymountainwolfproject.org you can learn a lot more about the data and what's going on and some stories and uh, Mike I'd love to have you back and I understand you're going to be here in uh, our valley at the American Renewable Energy Day coming up in a couple of weeks. I, I will. It will be an honor to be there speaking about the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. We'll have, uh, I believe, an ambassador wolf that will be tagging along with me to uh, help Excellent. Uh, to drive home the point that it sure would be nice if he could find uh, some of his own kind in, in the great public wildlands of western Colorado. So I will see you soon, Ellie. Thank you so much for the chance to offer thoughts today. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a fabulous conversation, and I look forward to meeting you and your Ambassador Wolf at our day. So, folks, uh, we're out of time. Thanks, Mike. And uh, in the meantime, step out into our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 